We think if you look at these different components, any decision along those three dimensions, that's a good compass for you. This is The Playbook. I am so excited to have Paul Mignoni. He is the head of Global Strategic Alliances at a tiny little company called Google. And most importantly, he's written a book that just totally excites me because as you know, I've written a book about decision-making called Game Time Decision-Making using sports stories and sports analogies to figure out how best to make decisions. But Paul, you know, welcome to uh, the playbook. There's this nuance that I didn't address in my book. And when I saw the title of your book, which is Decisions Over Decimals, Striking the Balance Between Intuition and Information, uh, I thought, wow, somebody's finally reconciled my biggest issue in decision-making, which is a combination of three things. Intellect, which we're overloaded with data, and you can go into that from your Google experience. Uh, Intuition, which is a nuance that a lot of people may or may not realize they have, uh, but also inspiration. And I was wondering how those decisions over all the data that we have available and accessible to us today reconcile with the intuition and the inspiration side of things. So, well, first off, thank you for having me. Um, You know, it's interesting what we get asked by the students in the class or people that we, we talk to is, how does all this come together? And you're right, there's a lot of publications that are out there that talk about one side or the other, and you're pointing out a, a, a third dimension. But the reality is, as humans, we're not deterministic in how we do things. We don't decide things based on, hey, I hit a number so I can make a choice, right? We make a choice because we feel confident about something. And then you tell those same people, okay, you wanna be confident about something, but you're not confident about the math. So do you trust the numbers, which maybe you're not comfortable with? Do you trust your gut? And suddenly it's you're, you're off the rails here and people have lost the map on how to make a good choice in today's day and age, when, as you pointed out, there's more and more data than ever before. So what we've struck upon over the past um, seven years teaching at Columbia and what we've written in the book here, Decisions Over Decimals, is uh, a recipe that the three of us have come together to to describe, which is based on a collective experience, right? So we're in the trenches, living this on a day-to-day basis, and we see what works, and you know it's resonating with people. When I look at big data, uh, which you're an expert at in your team and as a professor at one of the greatest institutions in our country, you know, it gets to be a little bit overwhelming in the multivariable aspect of big data, meaning that there's so many variables that even those who uh, understand math to its fullest can understand, you know, how to calculate the best statistical success on the paper, there seems to be an illusion that there is a correct answer when it comes to the decimals. Um, have you found from your experience in big data that the truth lies far beyond the numbers and that the numbers are whatever we make them out to be or, the, or like anything else, it's the meaning we give them? Yeah, you're exactly right. So I'm an engineer by training, you know, undergrad, and you're right, I'm surrounded by data professionals. And the fact is you can torture any number, any equation into what you want it to say, much like you could torture any fact into 
you know, confessing to almost anything you wanted to confess to, which is interesting. So as a decision maker, you need to get your bearings. You need to take a step back and say, well, listen, th there is a flood of things that are coming at me here. What's urgent and important, right? And put all of that in some sort of context. Understand what a baseline is today. Understand what that changes over time. By the way, does that change even matter to your business? So rather than the knee-jerk reactions, look at the data. Don't be a slave to the data. Understand intuitively. You know if you've got a sense for, hey, this is the right kind of direction. This is the right kind of thing for my business. This is the right kind of thing for my customers. And then look at those holistically. Look at those together. And you know, then people say, well, how do I learn that? Hmm. So ideally you've got some people if you don't know the math if you're not comfortable with the math you've got some people that can help you with the math but it comes down to a business decision and regardless of if you know the math or not as a good business leader you know what matters to your business and that's what you should be following and inherent in what you're saying is an order of prioritization and i note that you talked about roosevelt's urgency versus importance matrix and making those decisions yeah. But you have to know your values. You have to know what you want, who you can help, who can help you, as you mentioned, the customers, the vendors, et cetera, and then how best efficiently, effectively with statistical success, you can get it done. Why do so many leaders have such difficult, uh, such a difficult time prioritizing before they can make a decision and therefore they are stuck in two different uh, camps, one, the camp of procrastination and the camp of overwhelmed. And I find that this prioritization stems from looking within the organization, not outside at the data or the customers. Right. Well, I don't know if it's a greater phenomenon today than ever before, if it's really been accelerated over the past couple of years with what we've all gone through. But um, how many leaders do you think are actually making decisions? Hmm. Right? Yeah. I, listen, you, you know, I work with some of the largest firms on the planet and some of them say, hey, listen, we've got hundreds of thousands of people. There's like 10 that can make a choice, that can make a real choice, that really have the PL responsibility, that can really make a choice as an individual Everything else is some sort of consensus. So now you're into a team sport because decision-making is actually a team sport. And the fact is, if you look at that team sport, you were talking about sport before. If you look at that team sport, there's no script, right? You go into an emergency room, hopefully you don't. But if you're in an emergency room, everybody in that room, even if they've never worked together before, they know exactly the steps they're gonna take. Firemen, they know exactly the steps they're gonna take. Airline pilots, exactly the steps they're going to take. A good football team, the offensive line knows exactly what they're doing. It's an orchestrated ballet. They know what they're doing. Go into a boardroom. Go into a regular meeting with senior leaders. Are they following any sort of protocol that makes sense? Right. So the decision-making is we don't, as a, as, a, as a business society, as a culture, I feel we don't have our bearings on how to make good decisions. That's one of the reasons why we wrote the book, right? We've been teaching this for seven years and we figured let's write this down and hopefully we can find a tribe of people that start to make better decisions.
and to that end, I mean, there's a great book called Checklist Manifesto that goes through these protocols in all different areas. And show me that book one more time as I talk about the value of decision-making. Uh, because I think a lot of people, uh, when you get to a higher frequency and you get to, I would say your frequency is your neighborhood, uh, and you've experienced this at the highest levels, an executive, as a consultant, and as a professor, uh, the people who have these higher frequencies or awareness, they make decisions quickly. And there is a time aspect or value in the decision-making process, not just of decision-making itself as a capability, but to make a quick decision, uh, which to me stems from understanding with confidence the data, but more importantly, utilizing my intuition uh, to go ahead, knowing my priorities to make that decision quickly. Absolutely. And, it, you know, great leaders tend to zoom in and out. It's kind of like the Dan Kahneman thing, right? They're, they, they look like they're at the 30,000 foot level, and then they zoom down like a hawk right into something that matters. And how do they do that, right? Because they've got the real understanding of the business. They understand it to the DNA of the business. And then they've got their business acumen and their intuition. And you know, one, one structure that we talk about is what happens in the decision moment itself. And we like to think that you can triangulate it on three things, time, risk, and trust, right? So time, do you have no time whatsoever? That's, that's the fireman right? And they follow a protocol. If you have an enormous amount of time, well, suddenly you're Congress and it's taking nine months to deliberate how many pencils to buy. If it's high risk, you know, if it's low risk, yeah, order the sandwich. You don't have the sandwich, have the soup, right? Can I borrow your person today? Sure. Can I borrow them tomorrow? Uh, yeah. Hold on. Now you just created a gap for yourself in your group because you thought something was low risk and maybe it's not. Is it high risk, right? And we all see high risk things. And so coordinate time versus risk. The third dimension, trust. Do you trust the data? Do you trust the person that brought you the data? Why did you get that data and not other data? So what agendas are at play? And you know, we think if you look at these different components, any decision along those three dimensions, that's a, a, a good compass for you. And one of the other things that you talk about in that book to be a good decision maker is your ability not only to trust, but to vet uh, this idea of blending information, intuition, experience into an interrogators type of mindset where we're asking difficult questions, uncomfortable questions. And, you know, for you're looking at someone who has run major corporations, but lost over a hundred million dollars and people say, how do you do that? I said, because I trusted without vetting. I, I, I was uncomfortable making people feel uncomfortable by asking about the data and who was bringing me the data. Uh, and I made some really poor decisions. How important is the interrogation component uh, of vetting beyond trusting in the decision-making process? Uh, we think it's critical. We, we advocate for being a fierce interrogator, right? And the whole notion of a fierce interrogator is you're going to stick to your, you know, people talk about first order principles, whether you, whether you want to go to kind of Socratic times or Elon Musk, what, what is, what is that North star? What's the thing that matters? And there's so much other topics that come and draw time away from what is critically important. 
So the leader keeps the team on course. The leader says, are we assessing the data and its reliability? Are we putting it in context? Are we pressure testing that to say, this is really what matters to us and, and we know it, or are we down some random path that doesn't matter, right? So when you start with the data, and we love the data scientists, some of my closest friends, again, engineering degree. So I will never say anything negative about that. But if the first move is, let me go organize the spreadsheet. Is that really the first question or what problem are we trying to solve? So, you know, we, we get off track pretty quickly, right? Yeah. And, you know, as a professor, we always say the merit of a great professor is the questions not only that they ask of their students, but the questions they teach their students to ask. Are there certain questions that can give us greater insight on making decisions uh, to get a better analysis? Are there questions that you teach your students and in the books, questions that you teach to ask that can help facilitate better decisions? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the fact is, I'll, I'll go back to the math point because immediately people start thinking, well, we're in a data-driven society. And so how am I a leader in the data-driven society? Because I don't know the right questions to ask about you know, a regression analysis or, or God knows what else, right? Doesn't matter, right? As the business leader, you ideally have a team that can do that work, but you put it in context and you have to say, you have to ask things like, you know, again, does this fit the business problem that we're trying to solve? Are we directionally solving the right problem. Now, when I start to see feedback, are those indicators what I would expect to see? Um, do I know how to make the decision based on the data that was presented to me? Or is it obvious that there's a big gap and instead of diving further into that data, let's look at the situation as a whole and start to fill those gaps. So taking that step back, and really understanding that this is not about summary, it's about synthesis. And summary is chronological, right? So mm -hmm. summary is what the data scientists do, what the, the non-technologists do, they give you fact after fact after fact after fact, and nobody answered the question. And that happens in the synthesis. When you take all that information and you say, yeah, I, I see those piece parts here. I actually know what my customers really feel. Uh, I know whether we have a positive sentiment, whether they have a positive sentiment, whether we have confidence in the economy and our business and anything else. And you triangulate all that together. And that's how the synthesis happens. So who's doing the synthesis? Ideally, the leader is. And ideally, the leader is teaching their team to do more synthesis than summary. And as an educator and an author, we want to empower our future generation with these skills, the knowledge and the desire to make better decisions. And you talk about the synthesis of a leader and you mentioned, you know, obviously the data, which is IQ, uh, the intelligence that's necessary. You're an engineer, you're a strategic leader in, you know, the biggest company in the world. And, you know, then you have the second side that you just mentioned, which is the EQ side of it, the, these feelings. There's an emotional aspect in, in, in making it. I think there's a third intelligence that is coming to the forefront when you talk about the synthesis, and it's an adaptable 
intelligence. Yeah. And, you know, how do you now uh, balance, you know, because all three are necessary, but where do you put, you know, your percentage of focus when you're teaching or empowering these kids, you know, into the intelligent, the IQ, the EQ, and now new, let's just call it the AQ, the adaptable intelligence. Uh, you know, how important is that adaptability comparative? to what in the past has always been IQ and then transformed into EQ? Yeah, I, you know, we don't describe it this way, but I think, so it's a great question. So I think that adaptability is really, are you balancing, right? Or are you, are you balancing those different points here, right? And, you know, one of the things that we like to say is that decision-making, the techniques that we talk about, what you see in the real world, it, it's not waterfall, it's jazz, right? So people dive into a problem and they like they dive in to the techniques and the methods they know and then they put blinders on until they get to the end of what they thought they were solving for. Then they come back and you realize, hey, we just burnt weeks of time and budget investigating the wrong thing. Instead of taking a step back and saying at the first indication that we were looking at the wrong thing, let's go back to the decision process and understand, are we solving for the right thing, right? So there, there's, and, and that very much seems like jazz, right? There's an overall theme, right? And then the drummer goes off and does something. And then the bass player goes off and does something. And it's all within context. And you come back and you're building upon each other. And you're learning and building upon each other. That's the skill that's missing. That is that balance. That is that adaptability. That's the jazz. So, you know, maybe we should be calling it decision-making uh, as jazz or jazz is decision making, but I, you know, I think we got a third book in you. <laughs> yeah. Well, there might be a few more, but you know, it's, you know, we wound up with decisions over decimals. So that that's not a bad title, I guess. Yeah, no, I like the reconciliation between the two. And as a final question, this is your second book. And I always say life's about messages or lessons and uh, blessed to have published four books myself and continue mm -hmm. to write them. But I learn a lot each time that I write my own book is, you know, we teach enough, but we learn so much from that process. Uh, what was the biggest lesson that you've learned from the first book that you wrote to, to this one? Uh, because I think a lot of people want to be authors. They want to share their, their vision and their ideas. Uh, you know, I know there was a major gap of, of learning between my first and second book. What for you was the biggest takeaway between the two books? So the first book, although it did not somehow did not have the the term big data in it, or else maybe the book would have had a different trajectory. Uh, it just preceded that being in the vernacular, right? So, uh, but the first book was about dealing with the information overload. And as we started to speak about it, get on the speaking circuit, then started to teach about it, and you know, again, we've been teaching at Columbia for seven years. It evolved to yeah, get over yourself. Obviously, there's an information overload that's not going away. Does anybody think that's going away? Any of our listeners today? Is that going away? No, it's not going away, right? So, and it's just going to be compounded. So don't hyperventilate, get comfortable with that, and then build a toolkit for yourself. And so the aha moment leading into the second book was, I know that there's that, but how do I deal with the ambiguity? Because although there's this huge volume of data out there, Everybody says, but I don't know this about my customer. I don't know that about the business. I don't know this about the economic conditions. I don't know this about my industry trend. How can I make a choice? 
So it is about operating in the ambiguity and then filling in those gaps, looking at comparable things and helping you and your team to make choices and creating the space for your team to have real discussion around that and not being slaves to spreadsheets. Yeah, and this reconciliation, the balance between intuition and information, the decisions over decimals requires, you know, a new, I think, characteristic of humility. And, you know, what I love about the Webb telescope, for example, is that when I have concrete evidence of, you know, billions of galaxies, the only thing that I can think of about information in big data is I don't know what I don't know. And if there's billions of galaxies, how many trillions of variables are involved? And when we start getting into physics, quantum physics and metaphysics and relative to a quantitative aspect of the pragmatic world, the man-made construct of time, it actually turns me to the other side of this balance of, hey, I am gifted with intuition. And the more I practice and the greater my extent of my journey is, the better decisions I'll make by not only looking at the data, but being intuitive about the data. Sometimes, you know, I know we didn't discuss this, but we have feelings about numbers too. We we, we look at things and we feel the spreadsheet and say, this feels right. You know, I, I can't prove it. (laughs) <laughs> I would have to spend a lifetime to prove it, but this feels right. And I'm going to use that because it feels right. And that's what I love about the book. If we can give people that awareness, uh, last comments I could tell right now would be wonderful. Yeah. It's, you know, we very much talk about, um, uh, confidence, right? And so if you're a toddler, you don't know that you don't know how to walk. And then you suddenly start to walk. And so you're, unconsciously incompetent (laughs) and someday that same toddler is driving and when they're driving they're ideally they're good they're good drivers hopefully for all of us they're good drivers and they're unconsciously competent and there's a progression through there and so going from a toddler with the business decisions to a a good driver those skills require some sort of framework where you balance all these things out. And that's, that's hopefully what we're getting people to understand and building a tribe around that. And that tribe will accelerate its unconscious competencies by reading decisions over decimals just released here in September. Uh, Please everybody, we need more great leaders. And in order to have great leaders, we need intelligent followers and intelligent followers make good decisions, balancing the decimals and the decisions, decisions over decimals. Thank you so much, Paul Mignoni, for joining me.